thank you everybody for coming along with me to the latest edition of the Purple Nights podcast. And we've got a real treat today, probably my favorite guest that I've ever had on the podcast. And it's been two years since she was first on, but I'm very happy to welcome back the one and only Dr. Susan Rogers. How are you doing, Susan? I'm doing great, Chris. Thank you very much. That's high praise. You're flattering me, but thank you very much for inviting me back to talk with you and with your listeners. It's always a pleasure. Yeah, well, thank you so much for being here. And of course, today we're going to talk a bit about your new book that recently came out. And it, it's uh, this is what it sounds like, what the music you love says about you. And um, I I was going to say your co-author's name, but I don't want to butcher it. So I'll <laughs> let you handle that. That's a funny name. His name is Ogi Ogas. Okay. Ogi Ogas. Ogi's a, a PhD in computational neuroscience. And he approached me in Boston three years ago. And he said, how would you like to write a book about music? And I said, well, I really shouldn't because I don't know that much about it. I mean, my students are formally trained in music and, and they know music theory better than I do. They all perform. They're trained musicians. And uh, I said, well, what I could write a book about if some, is something I've been doing my whole adult life, listening. If you're a record producer or recording engineer, you're a professional listener. And then, of course, I studied and earned my Ph.D., in music perception and cognition. So I have book learning about listening. I have practical experience with listening. So that's what this book is about. It's about the listener profile. Yes. And that's how we're going to approach today's podcast. So a little bit different format than than we're used to. But uh, I thought rather than just, you know, offering a static summary of the contents of the book, that we delve into the listener profile, which is certainly the core of the book um so i what i did was i chose two songs that i i love very much and we're going to delve in to them via the listener profile and see where my sort of my sweet spots are <laughs> in terms of being a music listener so um Susan, how do you want to start this record pull off? Okay, well, let me start for the audience for des by describing two things. I'd like to describe a record pull, but before I do that, I want to describe the model of music listening that the book is discussing. And this Wonderful. book, by the yeah, this book, by the way, is written for the lay audience. You know, it's for people like me who are non-musicians who don't play or write or sing, but who love music like crazy. Of course, musicians who read it will, will get something from it, but um, it's for music lovers, whether they're musicians or not. So uh, in our brains, there are at least seven different ways that we can get a reward of dopamine or a re reward of adrenaline from listening to music. I learned about these things in school, and one of them, one of the seven, I learned about in the recording studio. So what that means is when we're listening to a record, your brain is scanning all the different elements of that record, and it's 
being like a dog at the dog park. It's looking for where the fun is. It's looking for where the treats are. So what we do automatically and unconsciously is we scan the four dimensions of music, which are melody, lyrics, rhythm, and timbre. Timbre is sound itself. And we scan the three dimensions that are aesthetic dimensions and apply to movies, books, television, dance. Those dimensions just happen to be novelty versus familiarity. Some people like their records to be avant-garde, groundbreaking. Other people like their records to be more traditional. Another aesthetic dimension is realism versus abstraction. Some people like their records to reflect the real world of real musicians in the studio performing. Other people like their techno or their electronic music, music that was made in the computer and didn't necessarily reflect real people in the studio all at the same time making music together. And then the third and final aesthetic dimension is the dimension of authenticity. Authenticity is very subjective. It's your notion of the genuineness of the musical performances and also where you think those performances are coming from. Is that singer singing her heart out? Is that bass player feeling that groove down in his hips, down in his toes? Can you believe this performance or not? So between the four musical dimensions and the three aesthetic dimensions, we've got seven different ways in which music can please us. Now, on each one of these dimensions, each one of us has a sweet spot. A sweet spot is where music feels most perfect for you. Some people like their lyrics to be simple and plain. Some people like their lyrics to be a little bit more poetic and abstract. We all have our sweet spots for everything. Those seven sweet spots, now you can think of, I'm going to mix my metaphors here, but pick um. Imagine the seven sweet spots are are a constellation of seven stars out there in the cosmos where there's an unimaginable number of stars. So pick seven stars that form a constellation. That's your listener profile. If you listen to any given record, it might land equidistant from all of those stars. And you like it well enough, but it doesn't attract you. It's okay. You can evaluate it and you go, yeah, it's okay. But it doesn't really attract you. However, if a given record just so happens to be positioned near any one or preferably more of the sweet spots, your stars, you'll feel a magnetic or a gravitational pull toward that record. That rhythm's going to be just right for you. That sound design's going to be just right. And all it takes is one. It only has to please you on one dimension. And you're pleased. You got your dopamine hit. Now, sometimes you ask people, what kind of music do you like? And they'll nearly always say, I like all kinds. I like all kinds of music. And I want to say back to them, of course you do. Of course you do. Because the music in your playlist was chosen for many different qualities. Sometimes you feel like hearing uh, something innovative and sometimes you feel like hearing something that's uh, maybe a little bit more realistic or sometimes you feel like hearing things with a big wide sweeping melody or or with uh, a, a, a slower tempo or a faster tempo. We all have these different ways in which music can satisfy us. You and I, Chris, each have our own unique listener profile everyone on earth 
has a unique listener profile. This is what makes music so varied and so great. We're yep. serving so many different tastes. Yep, yep, I agree. And I'm, I'm one of those people that, that uh, I was just telling somebody today that my, my musical tastes are vast and varied, and I like, I like all different types of genres. In fact, I can't really say that I, really, unequivocally hate any genre of music, because there's always exceptions in every genre that I. Right. That, I, that I'm really drawn to and that really uh, have elements that I really love. So Yes. Our taste in music is similar to our taste in food. You know, sometimes we want something sweet and sometimes we want something salty and sometimes something savory and sometimes high fat, sometimes low fat. Uh, music's job out there in the world is to be functional, to function for listeners. In the recording studio, we manipulate its form. We make decisions about how it should go, just like the chef makes decisions about how his or her food should be should be compiled. But it's the functionality of it that makes it work. When you listen to a record or when you sit, you sit at a restaurant and you order a plate of food, that food has to function for you. And preferably, it'll taste good, too. It has to hit your sweet spot for taste. And likewise, with music. And uh, that's why just as our taste in fashion and food is varied, so is our taste in music. I'm urging people in this book to never be a music snob. When someone tells you about the music they love, even if you don't like it, Recognize that they're telling you, this works for me. This functions in my life. Their music is just as valid as yours. Yep. Yep, I agree. And that's the approach I've always taken. I've always tended to have a very, very open mind and a very diplomatic personality. So I've never, I've never shamed anyone or looked down upon them for their, their, their music taste. Right. But, um, yeah, as you say, music music has to be functional and and work for the per, for the listener. And I love also in the book how you describe that there's a there's a loop of the, the music experience, right? There's the creation of the music, and then there's the listener who processes it and uh, takes it within themselves and analyzes it, and it sort of completes a loop of music listening. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. When we're in the recording studio making records, we're on output. Musicians are on output and they're putting words, melodies, harmonies, sounds out there into the world. And that job is only half done, just like when a chef sends a plate of food out to the kitchen or right out from the kitchen to the, to the server. It's not a meal until someone consumes it. And likewise, music isn't completely music until someone listens to it. We need listeners who are on input and who are receiving this music. Now, the interesting thing to me, the wonderful mystery, is that if a group of us were all in a room and someone was playing a record, acoustically speaking, we'd all be hearing the exact same pattern of air molecules going back and forth. It's the same for all of us. But once it gets up here into our brains, 
it becomes a different record for every single listener. Some people will like it, some won't. Some will be familiar with it, some won't. Some will focus on one part of it. Others will focus on a different part. Some people will be bored by it. Other people will be thrilled by it. It's a unique record in every listener's brain based on where that record happens to land in the vicinity of your sweet spots, either close or far from them. Right, right. And one thing, you mentioned that the book is for the layperson, and I very much appreciate that there are some neuroscientific concepts that are that are touched upon that are very very uh, challenging but in a good way it makes you think it makes you think about the processes of the brain and and how everything is processed just within a matter of milliseconds and yes. I wanted to say that the the diagrams and the illustrations that are in the book are very very helpful at breaking down the concepts and making them Thank digestible you. and making the making it easy to engage with w what you're trying to present and the concepts you're illustrating. I thought they were very, very well done. Thank and, you. Uh, yeah. So I really enjoy this book and, you know, lovers of music, which I know there are some out there that, that don't connect with music. And there's a, a little bit of a passage in the book even about that. But um, most of us, I would say, the majority of people that I've come in contact with in my life, all music resonates for all of us. And so if you're a fan of music, of listening to music, especially this book is really essential reading. Uh, I would suggest that everybody go out and get a copy. Uh -huh. um, I'm very excited to do a, a record poll here today. <laughs> uh, did we actually talk about what a record no. poll is? Yeah, you remembered. Thank you. I wanted to tell your listeners what a record poll is. So yes. I first I first got introduced to a record poll when I was in the music business as a fairly young engineer, younger than I am now. Producer I was working with said, hey, guys, it's time for a record poll. A record poll is like a song poll. So in the traditional song poll, group of songwriters get together and you basically just pass an acoustic guitar around the room and you take turns playing the song you've just written or, in, or, or are in the process of writing for one another. Song poll. But a record poll is different. Anybody can do a record poll. So the way a record poll works is you have to bring to the poll two or three records that you just love, records that make you weak in the knees, records that just expand your heart, that you love more than anything. Now, your job when it's your turn to play a record for your poll mates is you have to say why you love this record. And you can't say something like, oh, I don't know, I just really like it. Or, oh, it just reminds me of, you know, when I was in high school. No, no, no. You have to talk about that record and you have to be able to say, here's what I love. Here's why this record and not that record excites me. Now, the great thing about a record poll is one, you're sharing with your poll mates, your friends, a really intimate part in, of yourself. You're right. saying these lyrics spoke to me when I needed fill in the blank here. 
or this rhythm lifted me up or this groove. You have to describe the record and say why you love this record so much. What happens is you're more in touch with your listener profile because you kind of had to do some preparation before the record poll. Two, your friends are getting that intimate glimpse into your psyche. When we listen to music, it's private. No one else is in our heads. We go to our private place when we listen to music. And during a record poll, you have a chance to take your friends with you for just a moment into that private place in your psyche to let them know why you like this record so much. And then the third advantage that you get from a record poll is you get turned on to some great music. You get to know your friends better. They get to know you. And you get to learn about some music that you might not otherwise have paid attention to. So uh, my friend, um, a client of mine, Michael Penn, played a record by um, Elvis Costello at my first record poll. And he pointed out the lyrics that just were just crazy great. I became a fan of that record on the spot. The producer, Tony Berg, played a record with an incredible chord change, put his hands over his heart. Like, oh, just swooned when that chord change came. I became a fan of that record on the spot. And I hope the records I played did something for them, too. Yes, and I should mention that there's a website associated with with the book. And Mm -hmm. uh, what it's uh, this is what it sounds like dot com. Right. And you can go and listen to all of the tracks that are mentioned in the book. So you can do like a virtual almost like a virtual record pull by yourself uh, with this book. And it's very interactive and very engaging in that way. And it really drives home the seven dimensions of listening as you're listening to these songs, these examples of each of the dimensions. It really drives home what they are and what you should be listening for when you're speaking in terms of the seven dimensions of music listening. So the website is really, really awesome. And uh, I appreciated that as well, the interactive aspect to it. Thanks, Chris. I should mention for your listeners as well that this book isn't about my taste in music. Uh, the, the, The records that I describe in the book, many of them are records I love. Some of them are records that uh, I just use to illustrate the point. The book is not about my taste in music. It's about your taste, the reader's taste in music. With a great variety of music mentioned in that book, the odds are at least one or two of those songs is going to be something that you really love. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, So do we want to get straight into uh, my two songs or should we? I would love to. I'd love to. Yeah. Okay. Which one should we start out with? Whichever you prefer. Okay, well, this is the Purple Nights podcast after all. So I have to go with my man Prince. And the record I chose for this record poll is I Could Never Take the Place of Your Man Off the Side of the Times album. Now, did you engineer that track? Yes, uh, we were working at Sunset Sound in Los Angeles. He wanted something fairly fast tempo. I think in that in that particular moment, he wasn't in the mood to write. So occasionally when, when things were like that, he would um, have me pull up something from the vault. 
we had a lot of old tapes there at sunset and uh, we brought up I Could Never Take the Place of Your Man, which was something he had originally recorded a long time ago. So the drums were from a long time ago. But um, in fact, I wish I could remember how it originally sounded when we first put up the tape. I don't remember that, but we did a lot of modifications to it to modernize it. And he did that wonderful guitar solo that I love. And um, yeah, it was that was a good time working on that song. I, I, I remember doing the hand claps and it was just a lot of fun. Yeah, it's actually the demo originates from 1979, I believe. And it yeah. was, that version of it was released on the Super Deluxe Edition of Sign of the Times. Oh, I don't remember that. Okay, um, I'll go back to that and listen. Yeah, that's a great, the original version is great, but the... Uh, the revised version, if you will, for Sign of the Times, the updated, modernized version, is uh, holds a special place near and dear to my heart because um, sonically, I would say it's like it's like a musical version of Sunshine for me when I oh, when I listen to it. Um, that's it's lovely. Very, very, very bright and very poppy, and just instantly puts me in a good mood. With the with the tempo, the rhythm, and you know everything about the song. I mean, the drums, the the keyboards, you know, everything all all together just makes you know the equivalent for me of sunshine. If you could listen to sunshine, in my mind, it would sound like I could never take the place of your man, which is very interesting because when we get to the lyrics, I'll mention something interesting about that, but. Um, yeah, but just musically, it's just it's the the uh, epitome of happiness for me mm. on a record. That's interesting. I think one of the big factors contributing to that happiness is the background vocal arrangement. Yes, ooh, 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 ooh. it's a, it's got a very pop background vocal arrangement that lifts the whole thing up. Uh, very high backing vocals tend to do that for a record, it tends to lift them straight up. And then there's lots of percussion, there's the claps and there's tambourine, a big hi-hat running all the way through that record that really helps propel it forward. So it is working rather joyfully from the rhythmic aspect it's working joyfully from his melody and from from his lyrics. I mean, the lyrics are talking about a situation that's sad, but there's happiness there. He's singing that whole record with a smile on his right. face, you know, from top to bottom. And we feel that. Right. I was going to say that lyrically, it it excites me lyrically too, because there's a there's a there's a whole juxtaposition of this this unfortunate story about this young woman who's been, you know, um, she's pregnant and she's been abandoned basically by her partner, by her lover. And, you know, she's asking, she's asking this man if he wants to dance and he's like, no, it's not a good idea. So he's kind of rejecting her, but it's, it's kind of playful, but, the undertone is really sad and unfortunate. Yeah. So the juxtaposition of that story with the, you know, the the happy, you know, rhythmic music really sends a, a dopamine rush to my brain and it, it appeals to my intellectual side, like, wow, um, it's really interesting and really fascinating how that works. 
the juxtaposition of the, you know, the the sad lyrics or the sad yeah. story with the happy music. So it really gets me lyrically in that sense as well. That's a, an interesting production technique that people can do is you can have contrast between what the music is saying and what the lyrics are saying. Uh, it's not done as often as I would like. It's a very effective technique because what it does is it kind of fans the record out a little bit and it gives it, gives it layers of meaning. It can, right. it can touch you in a lot of different ways. Yeah. If you didn't understand the English language and you didn't know what the record was about, you'd probably just get pure joy from it. But if you understand the words, you get a story and you can picture that story and you can imagine the characters in the story. Then the record breaks down and he goes into a soulful thing and he does that great guitar solo. So it starts yeah. off pop. It goes into kind of a rock thing. And then at some points it gets really soulful and kind of funky. That's another thing that's marvelous about it. It takes you mentally on a long journey through a yes. few different styles. The The album version is over six minutes long. It's uh, um, on the, we talked about the, the musical dimensions, but on the aesthetic dimensions between novelty and familiarity, it does that wonderful thing, which is common to all successful pop tracks of being just that, perfect blend of familiarity and novelty. So it's familiar in that the drum pattern is familiar. There's nothing unusual about the chord changes or anything like that. The lyrics are simple and easy to understand. It's familiar. We know where it's coming from, but it's unfamiliar in the fact that it goes through these different styles from pop to kind of a rock thing, a classic rock solo, and then into a soulful thing. So that's novel enough to keep our attention and make it not just another Prince song, but actually kind of a special Prince song. In terms of realism, for me, my favorite visual fantasy that I enjoy when I'm listening to the music I love is I love picturing the musicians in the studio. So this record made with all realistic instruments lets me have the fantasy I like. My co-author, Ogi Ogas, <laughs> Ogi is just the opposite of me. Ogi does not like to picture the musicians at all. He doesn't like music with lyrics in it. Ogi likes electronic music. So it wouldn't satisfy, this record would not satisfy Ogi. It just wouldn't be his thing. On the level of authenticity, it's totally, uh, to me, genuine and, and profound as everything that Prince did was. He's never, on, on record, Prince was never bored. He was never just phoning it in. He was always committed to every single performance in the studio. Right, that that glorious guitar solo that, that you hear right before it goes into the, the bluesy breakdown yeah. is one of the best so solos I think Prince ever recorded. For me too. It's just really, really uplifting and a really, really great element of the track. But yeah. And then the second record I chose for contrast, but I also chose it because they're my second favorite artist or group or however you want to word it. They're my second favorite next to Prince. And that is Nirvana, mm. which is kind of kind of says something unique to me because they can't be any more different in terms of, you know, musical quality and genre and all that. But Heart Shaped Box by Nirvana 
uh, was one of my favorite songs and still is, but especially was one of my favorite songs in my early teen years because um, the main thing, the main thing that I go to, which I love the music as well, but the main thing that hooks me with this song is the lyrics because I think they're re- they're simple yet they're really poetic and a lot of Kurt Cobain's lyrics are are abstract these are abstract somewhat but not to a degree where they're totally undecipherable or anything like that but they're they're very poetic and I love mm. I love the first lyric of the song because I happen to be my astrological sign is Pisces. Mm-hmm. So uh, the the line, you know, she eyes me like a Pisces when I am weak. Um, it makes me think, you know, just the the evocation of the, the, that astrological sign, which Kurt was a Pisces himself. Mm-hmm. Um, it just makes me wonder about, you know, what exactly is, Eyeing someone like a Pisces, what exactly does that entail? And I still haven't figured it out, but it's a it's a question that fascinates me and it it strikes me as very, very poetic and very very meaning there's very much meaning behind that, but I can't quite work out what it is, but yeah. it, it fascinates me. And- now a lot a lot of um what you're saying is that this record lands really close to your sweet spot on lyric writing, meaning yes. that on some level it's understandable, but on another level it's rather enigmatic. So yes. you get the gist of what he's saying, but you don't know exactly what he means. And for you, lyrically, that's that's satisfying. What about the other elements of it? Like, um, well, just anything about the style of it or the rhythm or anything? The rhythm is the rhythm is very very intoxicating. It's very mellow in the verses, um, very mellow in the verses, very poetic, um, you know. Um, and it's it's telling this this sort of creepy story, but it's it's creepy in a loving way, if that if if I can say it that way. But it's kind of odd, but. Um, you know, he's been locked in a heart-shaped box for four weeks, and uh, he says, "I've been drawn into your magnet tar pit trap." Yeah, what does that mean? Yeah, what does it mean? I don't know <laughs> what it means, but it's poetic and it's deep, and I like it. Yeah, there's a scholar whose work I read uh, as I was writing this book, and he talked about how. Lyrics often resemble inner speech, the voice inside our own heads. So take, for example, Whitney Houston. She'll say, I need a man to take a chance. And then so she's talking to herself. Let's say I need a man who'll take a chance. And then she's talking to someone else. Don't you want to dance? And that song, I want to dance with somebody. So sometimes lyrics feel like that. It feels like sometimes stream of consciousness or the artist talking to themselves or just making up words that seem to make sense. Don McLean's American Pie is the greatest example of that. Yeah. People asked him afterward, what does it mean? And 
he would say things like, it just means I'll never have to work again because he was just kind of riffing. But people attached or looked for meaning in these words. So we don't know. Kurt is gone. He's no longer with us. We don't know what exactly he meant, but that's okay. And this is why music can feel so personal to us. We can make up our own interpretation of what it means. And we can be right. very satisfied with that. Right. It's just it's just fascinating to me because this song, you know, with with lyrical examples, I can provide um some more, but this song and the album as a whole, Nirvana's in utero, used very medical, you know, medical imagery to talk about the human condition and I guess the condition of the human spirit, I guess you could say it. It's very interesting for me having you know, with, with cerebral palsy, I've spent a lot of time in hospitals and I've had numerous surgeries for for different things, um, not relating to my disability per se, but although some have been, but I've been exposed to a lot of hospitals in my life and the medical imagery across the whole album speaks to me. So a line like, I wish I could eat your cancer when you turn black. It's like, to me, I interpret that as, you know, uh, an act of, uh, a saving act or an act of, you know, helping the person mm. get rid of their illness, get mm. rid of what's ailing them, a loving act. Um, but it's kind of a morbid in another sense. So, yeah, yeah lyrically, it really, it really resonates with me. I don't know. I don't know how much deeper I can get with that, but it's it's really lyrically resonant for me. And musically, like I say, the verses are really, really mellow. Uh, quite common with Nirvana's music as a whole. I think the, the verses are usually pretty, pretty mellow, and then the chorus really ramps up with these fuzzy, crunchy yeah. guitars. And... Uh, you know, you got that almost, you know, guttural, you know, screaming where he says, hey, wait, I've got a new complaint forever in debt to your priceless advice. And again, lyrically and meaning wise, it struck a chord with me because it's kind of that sarcastic, angsty point of view that a, that a teenager would have towards right. life, you know. Oh yeah, I'm forever in debt to your priceless advice, you know. Um and you know um teenagers, you know, we when we're teenagers we tend to complain a lot and gripe about everything. So it's like, hey, wait, I've got a new complaint, you know. I'm always complaining, always feeling that need to sort of complain and object and and rebel against this you know sense of angst that I have so as a teenager it really resonated with me in terms of timbre you know the sound the aggressiveness of the guitars mm. again underlined that that feeling of angst that feeling of you know sarcasm of frustration um and I think that's why 
Nirvana appeals to me so much is because in my teen years is when it really hit home psychologically that you know I'm never I'm never gonna be able to do normal quote unquote normal things, right? Like normal people do. And so hearing that sort of rage and frustration play out in the the instrumentation of the song really resonated with me because it was a it was a place to channel my own my own rage and my own frustration and my own sarcasm and my own darkness in these you know you know pounding crunchy fuzzy notes mm. you know this real heavy music it was a it was a place where all that all my own anger and frustration could could dissipate through the 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 sound of the music i don't know if that makes sense to you susan or it makes not. perfect sense and isn't that wonderful there's nothing better than that when that happens. So yeah. when when an artist has a seed, a spark of inspiration, they get that notepad and they write out those lyrics and they get that guitar and they come up with those chord changes and they figure out what that rhythm's going to be. They're expressing something about their own lives that they want to put out there in the world. And they do. They go into the studio and they make a record and they put that out there in the world. But the endlessly fascinating mystery to me is that other people, yourself, me, and other people can listen to that seed or rather consume the fruit of the plant that that seed grew and it becomes a whole new thing. So what the song means to you feels so true and so right and so spot on for what you would like to say for me it, it's slightly different for kurt cobain it was slightly different yet yeah. we're all agreeing that that this song is great it's working for us even though our situations our conditions our genders our ages are different yeah it all works for us on a on a human level we're both incredibly unique and 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 incredibly similar that's a remarkable thing about music there's yeah. one other thing i want to say about heart-shaped box um and yeah. slightly contradicts something you said earlier you were saying that prince and nirvana couldn't be further apart i think kurt cobain and prince lived on a look closer in their neighborhoods than you might imagine really oh yeah it's been famously said that kurt cobain was in his heart of hearts a pop artist he hated himself for that but he loved the beatles he listened to pop music and if you listen to this record heart-shaped box pay attention to the background vocal that background vocal is pure pop you can hear his beatles influence in his work now in the style of music he was doing in the day was grunge music but you can tell especially with those sparse verses he's using the verse in the classic way verses set up chorus is the payoff yep. verse is rather yep. small chorus gets big that's yep. pop yep. pop music writing and you can also tell kurt cobain had an ear for melody he liked melody he wrote some memorable melodies prince too prince grew up with funk and soul he knew jazz he knew blues but 
when Prince would sit at the piano, he'd start playing a little jazz and he'd turn it around and he'd walk it right back to pop. He'd start playing a little blues, but he was never a pure blues musician because that that river of pop inspiration flowed so strong and so deep in him. I think Kurt and, and Prince were very similar styles of writers in, oh. uh, in, a, certain, in a certain way. Fascinating. That kind of that kind of makes me feel validated in a big way for yeah. for for loving them as much as I do. So I, from that from that, you know, inference, I would say that my sweet spot tends to lead more toward pop. Would you say that? In my, I think you like melody. Clearly, you're a fan of melody. Yep. And clearly, you're a fan of lyrics, and that. And those two dimensions are um, dimensions that you favor over some of the others. Now, here's another thing about the listener profile. Some of these dimensions are uh, preferred for us compared to others. Not always. We might like them all equally. Others we don't care about. So sometimes when people will say to you, oh, you know, I never listen to the words, they're telling the truth. Yeah. When they say that, say that it means the lyrics when they go when their brain goes scanning music for a treat it doesn't even bother looking at the lyrical content it doesn't care it doesn't yeah. have a strong powerful um star or sweet spot over there in lyrics town but over in rhythm or it might be timbre or something like that they have very uh strong strong preferences yeah yeah, I tend to I tend to favor lyrical music over instrumentals. There there are a few instrumentals that I absolutely love, but I can probably count them on one hand, as opposed to mm. how many songs I love with lyrics. Mm. So that's that's very true for me. I'll tell you, my three strongest attractors are melody, rhythm, and novelty. I, when I go listening to music, I'm listening for new ideas and innovation. And I get so thrilled when I hear records that feature some just cleverness, uh, cleverness in terms of it can be anything, it can be the lyric writing or the style or the arrangement. But boy, I, I love that novelty. Got to have my novelty. Yeah. Love rhythm. I'm a groove based, uh, always been a groove based record producer. That rhythm is gotta at least be strong enough to engage me if a song is rhythmically weak i'm not going to be interested in that record and uh, melody melody matters greatly to me a, a beautiful melody will captivate me so instantly so instantly yeah i would say i would say that rhythm is right up there with lyrics in terms of and melody in terms of what i what i love the most and i i think that that uh, quality was instill, instilled in me largely by listening to Prince's music. Mm, yeah. Because Prince has an ex exceptional sense of rhythm and an exceptional uh, use of rhythm and throughout his whole catalog. So that really that really grew to be one of my one of my loves musically is rhythm and also like an artist that inspired Prince like I I think of somebody like James Brown as well uh, same type of thing you know with that soul music you know rhythm is very a very important aspect of of that type of music and it's something that really 
resonates with me. Uh, so lyrics, melody, and rhythm are probably my top three. Mm. Um, novelty, I kind of, when I, when I read the chapter on novelty, I was like, how much how much do I really like novelty? But I, I was wondering if I had really a complete sense of what novelty is and how you define it, because there might be some elements of novelty or some degree of novelty that I like in music, but if something's totally avant-garde and off the wall um, to where it's unintelligible to me, then that kind of turns me off, but a, a small degree of novelty might excite me or yeah. you know, motivate me to listen more, but can you talk a little bit about novelty and what exactly it is and what exactly yeah. you love about it? Yeah, uh, for your listeners, I'm taking a very famous bell curve. The bell curve is used to describe people's height and weight and IQ and all that. It's just a distribution of norms. So I'm taking a famous bell curve from 1971 where the x-axis was simplicity versus complexity. And I'm superimposing that on music and using it for music. So the simplest music of all is not appealing to adults because the simplest music of all is children's music. Barney the Purple Dinosaur, I love you, you love me, or Baby Shark, do-do-do-do-do-do, Baby Shark. Adults aren't going to be grooving to that record. It's just too simple, too repetitive. It's not complex enough. It's too boring for adults. But that's at the far left side of the bell curve. If you look now at the far right side of the bell curve with the greatest complexity, the music that is the most complex is music that at least tries to be completely unpredictable. And that's freeform jazz. It'll change keys unexpectedly. It'll be atonal. It'll sometimes be arrhythmic. It tries deliberately to be completely unpredictable. A lot of adults don't listen to that either because it's too cognitively taxing. It's 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 too chaotic. It's too complex. In right. the center of the bell curve, the big hump in the middle is where we find pop music because the y-axis here is record sales. Children's music doesn't sell to adults. Freeform jazz doesn't sell a lot to adults. Pop music has managed to strike the perfect balance between some familiar elements of music, like a 4-4 time signature or maybe uh, consonant intervals and things like that, coupled with some novelty. The novelty these days tends to be in the sound design, in the timbres. Sometimes the novelty can be in the lyrics, people writing about things that we normally haven't heard about in songs. We just passed through 40 years of innovation in rhythm, and I think we're finally working our way out of that trend and working toward the days of, of innovative sound design. So the records we're likely to hear on the pop charts today will most likely have some innovative sounds coupled with a very familiar form. Now, right. some, because the bell curve is symmetrical, there are just as many people on the left side of the curve as there are on the right. On the left side of the curve, we have music listeners like my brothers. My brothers love music. And what they listen to is classic rock. They like new music if it follows the form of classic rock, which is getting increasingly rare. They, 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 they like music the way they like sports. When they watch sports, 
They're seeing something they've seen hundreds of times. It could be a football game or baseball game. You know how the game's going to go. There aren't going to be many surprises here. What they want to know is how this game is going to go. And they want to see a familiar game played at the highest level. Likewise, when they listen to their rock music, they want to hear a classic form of music played by the best of the best. Now, for me, rock music, I love it. I appreciate it. But when I am seeking out new music, I've got a stronger appetite for things I've never heard before. It could be sounds I've never heard before. Often these days, it's arrangements I've never heard before. Surprise me. Give me a stronger thrill of surprise. My brothers would not be interested in that music, the music that I like. We're, we're on opposite sides of the bell curve there. Okay. I would, I would say I'm somewhere in between leaning mm. slightly leaning ever so slightly to the side of your brothers because I'm, mm-hmm. pretty, I'm pretty traditional with what I like, but I, I do like novelty and innovation. Like I love, like when you were describing novelty and different sounds and stuff, of course, it's not revolutionary, revolutionary anymore, but at the time, a record like uh, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club right. Band by the Beatles was very very innovative and very avant-garde and I love that type of stuff and even some of Nirvana's stuff incorporates different sounds and you know the sound of the sound of guitar feedback is just as much an instrument if Mm. you will as the guitar itself yeah you know so different things like that I can appreciate but yeah overall (laughs) I lean towards a more uh traditional predictable stuff and that's not yeah. to say that's not to say that novelty doesn't excite me it's just like not near one of my spots now the left side of the curve is where all our classic forms of music lie and there are a lot of music lovers who love these forms bluegrass reggae yep. folk Even disco is now a classic form. So last night I was in Wisconsin, in Madison, Wisconsin, and I was sharing the stage with a music professor at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. Daniel Grabois is his name. And he told a a story in 1979. He and his friend, they were at a a disco. They were at a club. The floor was packed. Everybody's dancing. (laughs) And a new record came on. And it just cleared the floor. Nobody wanted to dance to this record. And Daniel loved it instantly. At first listen, he loved it. The record was uh, The Message by Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. It's oh, like a jump sometimes. I'm to keep myself. <laughs> Don't push me because I'm close to the edge. It cleared out the floor. Nobody knew how to dance to that. Nobody liked it. It was too novel. It was brand new. This is when rap was really starting to emerge and that was of course the first rap hit single but it's interesting because in 1979 people didn't know how to dance to it but if you played that on the dance floor now nobody would dance to it but for a different reason it would be too familiar we know it too well Uh, dance and music co-evolve with one another so Music, popular music is by, for, and about young people. And in general, musicians are trying to make music that will help people find each other and connect with each other. And people who want to connect with each other are going to 
popularize the music that helps them connect with one another. It's always going to change generation to generation. It's always going to change. If if Heart Shaped Box came out today, it would be considered pretty tame. Same thing with I Could Never Take the Place of Your Man. But I, I to Prince's credit, his music does age pretty well. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's been interesting talking to you about these seven dimensions. And like I say, I'll say it again. Please, if you're a music lover, if you're a music listener, please get this book and check it out. Thank you. It's available now. And uh, Susan, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so, so much for telling your listeners about this book. I do hope that they read it and I hope that they get to know their listener profile. And I really, really hope that more people will get together and have a record pull. Have some people over to the house, you know, have have a few friends. It's nice when it's about four or five people, maybe a little more, but have a record pull and uh, you'll learn something about your friends and you'll get turned on to some new music and you'll do the same for them. Yeah, and I've loved the the part of the book that resonated most with me, I would say, was towards the end of the book where you talk about how music can actually shape our identities and mm-hmm. get, get us closer to our true selves than really any other art form can. Can you talk a little bit about that? Oh, yeah. So we didn't talk about the default network. So the default network is a network of neural assemblies, of nuclei. And it's so-called the default network because it's the brain network that gets active when we go into our own heads. So if you ask people in the laboratory, are you thinking about something other than what you're doing right now? 30 to 50% of the time, people will say yes. That's what a human brain does. It's focused on the outside world, and then it goes into its own thoughts. Then it goes back to the outside world and into its own thoughts. Now, that default network, which is busy a good portion of our day, it's sitting there minding its own business and you're carried away with your own thoughts, your own feelings, and you're in your own head. When we put music on to listen to, it turns out that the music we like is really good at activating that default network. So when you're listening to music you love, your default network gets active. Your default network just so happens to be concerned with your self-image, your self-awareness, your self-consciousness, your self-identity. So music truly, and music listening in particular, truly lets us experience ourselves in a way that no other art form can. It feels so private and so intimate in part because it activates our sense of self. No other art form does it this effectively. Right. This has been shown in laboratory studies. So I like to use, and I've been using it for 40 years, the phrase, the music of me, or the music of you. Right. When I listen to the music I love the most, that's the music of me, meaning that's my musical self-identity. That's the music I would write and play and perform if I could. That's right. my musicianship. And likewise with all of us, our our listener abilities are our musical abilities as well. Right. It's funny that you say that because it 
reminds me of a of a quote by Prince, and I'm I'm paraphrasing here, but he basically says, "If you want to know me, listen to my music." I agree with that. That's yep. exactly it. So that's a good that's a good spot to end on and enjoy your semi retirement. And if you're up to anything, I hope you'd let us know and we'll have you back on the podcast. And you're you're such a lovely guest. Thank you. And I'm really, really happy and honored to have you on again. And it was just an absolute pleasure. So thank you so much. Thank um, you, Chris. I, I really appreciate it. Is there any way for people who want to reach you? So I'm no good with the uh, social media, although two days ago I finally got on Twitter. Uh, I, I wanted to help Prince fans know if I was speaking in their town so they can come out and they can they can, they can ask uh, Prince questions. So if you wanted to reach me on Twitter, and bear with me here because I'm just figuring out how it works, but it's at with the little at symbol and then yep. all one word, Susan T. I-W-I-S-L, which is short for this is what it sounds like. Susan T-I-W-I-S-L. So okay. that's the Twitter thing. And then uh, you can always reach me. You can email me on the, the book's website, which is all one word. This is what it sounds like dot com. Okay. Thank you very much, Susan Rogers, ladies and gentlemen. And we'll see you next time. This is Chris Johnson saying peace. And be wild. <laughs> Bye, Chris. You're great. It's nice talking with you.